0: when I was a child, I used to like those things called snow globes. You know what those things are? You know, my mother would never buy nice glass ones for me because I'd destroy them. I always wanted to know what the liquid was on the inside. But you shake them up, and it snows inside the plastic container. And it would seem like a blizzard, and then it would eventually calm down. And then being a hyperactive boy, I would shake it up again and watch the people go through the blizzard inside the little snow globe. Now I just call that life. (laughs) Life to me is like a snow globe. Uh, It seems to me that things get shaky for a little while, then they seem to calm down. And then they get shaky for a little while, then they seem to calm down. Now some of you say my life never calms down. All right, the the force of the blizzard might calm down a little bit. Uh, The same thing with the world. Uh, What can seem so stable can be so shaky at times, and it can be a very scary world because we know it's a very unstable world. Uh, for a lot of people in the midst of uh, uncertainty and chaos, the question becomes, where's God? Uh, people with without faith, if that's you here today, thanks for coming. We're really glad that you're here. And, and so people without faith, they'll often, in those situations when times are difficult, will deny the uh, God or, or just question his existence. Uh, people with faith, if they're really honest, they'll all have times when they will just say, Lord, what in the world are you doing? Like it seems like there's no possible good that can come out of this situation. Yes, things are out of control at times, yet the Lord gives us reminders and promises in his word, some very obvious, and some we have to really kind of read behind the lines of or look really carefully for, that he is in control. And so the title of our message today is Finding Stability in a shaky world. Well, about 2,600 years ago, actually even a little bit longer, God's people over in Israel uh, had left him for false gods. And after a hundred years of warning, even more than that, first up north, they had some problems. And then a hundred years later, that's the problems again started to surface down south. Uh, after all this warning down south where Jerusalem is, the Babylonians came to Jerusalem. This puts us about 600 years before Jesus is born. Uh, some of the people in Jerusalem had this arrogant attitude. They thought, well, we have the temple. We're not like those northern people. We're like, we're the, you know, we have the temple. And because of that, God will defend us, because he'll never let the temple come down, which they kind of associated in kind of a bad way. That was like the house of the Lord, yes, but, but God is not limited to that. And so Ezekiel tells us that what happened was the glory of the Lord left the temple. And then what happened? People said, well, you know, we got the temple. We're fine, God. We can do whatever we want. We can follow false gods. And we don't really need you. We don't have to worry about such things. You're going to defend your own house. And God said, You don't need me. Okay. And the Babylonians came in and destroyed the city and the temple. And they took uh, quite a few people back captive to Babylon in the period known as the 70 year captivity. In 538 BC, uh, the Lord brought back about 50,000 through some supernatural events of just putting his. His plan in the minds of kings, forty thousand, maybe fifty thousand people, back to Jerusalem to build the temple. In chapter one, we saw what happened was that the people uh, became self-centered, and there's a lot of problems. It was difficult. Anything you do for that's worthwhile is hard and difficult. That's the way it goes. You're serving the Lord. It's it's not easy. And so expect that stuff. Don't be surprised at that stuff. And so we've been saying around here at the staff, you know, like, oh, wow, the people have really been, you know, growing through Haggai. And we're like, yeah, and here comes the other guy, <laughs> right? And, and so all kinds of other stuff is, you know, seems to be going on weird, weird kind of stuff, you know, the bathroom breaks, the heater breaks, people in crisis, it's, just, you know, normal pastoral life. And so, and so they, they, they really became to, to the point in time where they said, well, we're just going to put that to the side. We'll get our own life settled first. Can I give you a free, no-advice, uh, no-charge advice? You will never get your life settled. It's never going to happen. And so the construction came to a halt. And then about 16 years later, God sent Haggai and the people started to build again. So today we, we pick up and we end the letter here in verse 20, and it continues the thoughts from verse 10 through 19: as the Lord is calling his people to follow him. And to obey him, and remember we said last week, to obey the Lord is not like, you will obey. No, it's, it's like living the life according to the word of the Lord. And you will, li- you will, you will live that life, and the, so he's calling them to start following uh, after him. And, and so he's, he's, the Lord is talking to them uh, from a hopeless past. Everything that had happened to them, some of them, they were... They, they were taken away to Babylon when they were kids, now they come back, the city's in ruins, other people that were born in Babylon, they come back to Jerusalem, like this is what all the old people were talking about, what a dump, because it had been destroyed by, destroyed by war, and the Lord has taken them from that hopeless past to a promised future, to give them hope through a man named Zerubbabel, Verse 20, I want to read it twice. It says, and again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I will shake heaven and earth. Now let's go slowly through that verse. He says, and again, so this is a second time. It's the same day, we're going to see it's the same day as it was verses 10 through 19. The word of the Lord came to Haggai. Now, it's very interesting. Before, in chapter 1, it said it came by Haggai. Haggai spoke to the people. The word of the Lord was coming through him. Now it's coming to him. Uh, God is speaking directly to Haggai. And honestly, whether it's through or to, that is my prayer for us every time we gather, that God would speak uh, either through the teaching of God's word or to somehow to each and every one of us. Uh, it's every time we gather, every time we gather in our community groups, whatever we do uh, together, that God would, any kind of informal meetings, if people are going out to lunch together, or a few people getting together to read the Bible and pray, or fellowship together, that God would speak through his word directly to individuals and through to groups of people. And so it came, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, so it's the same day as Verse 10 through 19, it was the celebration of the finishing of the foundation of the temple. And then verse 21, just a little bit of it. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor, bank that word, you're going to need that in a bit, governor of Judah, that's the area where Jerusalem was located, in southern kingdom, saying, and let's just stop right there. Now, 500 years earlier, the Lord had promised King David That the Messiah would come through his family line. But honestly, the Babylonian captivity seemed to kill that promise. In verse 19, we read last week that God said, But from this day I will bless you. And now God is going to put some legs on what it means that he is going to bless them. But that blessing is going to go far beyond 520 BC. Zerubbabel's name means born in captivity, or it can also mean the offspring of, offspring of Babylon. So he was born in Babylon, but now he's in the city of God. He was born there in Babylon, and he's one of the people that came back and now is in Jerusalem. Now, if you've been with us, uh, we've seen that Zerubbabel, and it said it, that's why I wanted to jump into verse 2 a little bit, governor of Judah. Zerubbabel was the Persian Empire appointed governor of Judah. Persian, the Persians were the world's superpower at that point in time. But we're going to see more about him that is, makes him way more important than being the governor. He is in the line, and we've been referencing this as we've been going along. He is in the line, the family line of King David. Now, because the temple that they're building, they know is not going to be like the first temple, Solomon's temple was this glorious thing, to a lot of people, the work that they were doing on the second temple, although we said early in Haggai, God kind of considered them one temple, because that's where his presence was with his people, but what they were doing, the work that they were doing, seemed to be insignificant. But, Haggai is leaving us with this, the Lord is leaving us with this, so... The promise of the Messiah to come through Zerubbabel's family line through King David will fuel their work. And that's true for all of us that are followers of Jesus. We look back at the Messiah who came, the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are motivated by grace to live for him and to serve him because we know that he will come again. Now again, we put ourselves, we're standing there in Jerusalem. We're looking at the temple site, all right? Maybe they've got the foundation done, but we've been saying all along that the place is just a place of destruction and rubble, and so are the lives of many people. So are maybe your life here this morning, but God is with his people, and, and we talked about last week, it's not about being with religious people. It's about people who have put their trust in him. If you weren't here last week, you either listen online or get a copy of the message of, of the problem with religion. Friends, if, if you are going to have staying power in the Christian life, if you're going to stay at this thing for a long time and, and not give up and, and be fueled by the Holy Spirit, not by your own energy, in serving the Lord in tough times, it is critical that you see the big picture. It, it, it's critical that you keep the big picture out in front of you. And that's what Haggai is going to give to Zerubbabel and by extension the people and by extension to us this morning. The scripture teaches that God's blessing is on those who persevere. Who keep the kingdom of God in, perspre- in perspective in the midst of ruin. And you may not believe this but it is true. That your loyal and faithful service is actually part of the history of the people of God until the Lord returns. Now, here's a lot of you might be saying, well, he's a pastor. He has to say that. What, do we need more volunteers or something like that? Well, we'll take as many as we can get because we'll always make room for you. Don't be like, I know you think, oh, they've got it all together. Well, we don't have it all together. Okay? So so that's another, that's another story for another day. But actually, I believe that how much your service, your faithful service, actually is part of the history of the people of God, I actually think that Haggai is going to prove it to us today. Well, let's continue with verse 21. Well, let's pick it up again. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying... Now, I always love this when God is talking to someone. Uh, to me, this is so cool. I'm always like, shh, let's, let's eavesdrop, you know, like... You know, we bug the room, or we're just kind of listening on the side. Did you hear what God told me? No, no, we did we're what God told you. And so we're going to listen in. And so God moves, really, from the present to the future, or talks about, really, the, the present and the future at the same time. He uses apocalyptic language. He says, speak to the Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah, I will shake heaven and earth. Another version says, I'm going to shake the heavens and the earth. The idea is, the Lord says, I'm going to shake the whole created realm. Verse 22. In verse 22, the Lord uses Old Testament language about what he has done in the past to give us confidence in the present and in the future. Notice how many times he says, I will. Verse 22. I will overthrow the thrones of kingdoms. I will destroy the strength of the Gentile kingdoms. In other words, I'm going to destroy all the oppressors. I will overthrow the chariots. We might say in our language, they, no matter what kind of military equipment they have, no problemo, God says. No problem. I'm going to ta- I, I can take care of this. Because chariots back then were the best military equipment. And those who ride in them, The horses and their riders shall come down. Some versions say fall. That's a word used for death. Everyone by the sword of his brother. In other words, they're actually going to be so confused, they're going to end up fighting one another, or there could be equipment malfunctions, or somehow they could end up killing each other. Now, you say, well, that kind of stuff could never happen. That could never happen. My cousin... Uh, who I grew up with, my cousin Jerry, who flies now, he's in the real war. He flies for American Airlines. But um, <laughs> I asked him, do you like the security door? He goes, we love it. <laughs> so, so he goes, now the, now the flight attendants have to deal with all the complaints. But he, he flew uh, 32 missions to Baghdad in Gulf War I. And he told me that, uh, what he he says, what we were worried about is their artillery wasn't coming close to us at all. You know, the whole shock and awe thing, if if you're a history buff or you're alive at that time. And he said, we were not really worried about their artillery. We were watching it explode. It was like watching fireworks down below us. We were up so high. He said, what was really scary, though, is we were fueling over Baghdad. See, if you send us out to an open area fueling a plane in the air, piece of cake. But we're flying like a couple feet from each other, and we're like, "Don't anybody hit the fuel plane, right? Don't hit the fuel line." So, so it's possible even in this modern day for for an army to be actually killing one another, and to be and to be kind of confused with stuff. So, what's going on here? The Lord says this. Listen, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to take the snow globe. I'm going to take the snow globe out of the oppressor and the enemy's hand. And I'm going to shake up the world for those people. I'm going to take their world and I'm going to shake it up just like they've been doing for everybody else. Now, this is the language of what we call a theophany, a visible appearance of the Lord, and it causes the earth to shake. And Whenever I think of that, I think of this, this great, great song from 25 years ago called Did You Feel the Mountains Tremble? Now, the song is Delirious, because that's the name of the group. And, and here's the thing. All the cool, hip groups of today are still doing it. There's, if, you, if you Google that song, you know, Did You Feel the Mountains tremble? I still say Delirious has the best version of it. Uh, but people are still playing it today. I remember one time, uh, God bless his heart, when Rocco, before he went home to be, Pastor Rocco, before he went home to be with the Lord, I, I said I was, had been listening to that song, because I do listen to it fairly often, And 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 I said, Have you ever heard this song? And and I emailed it to him, and he just he just comes up to my office and in classic Rocco fashion he's like, Whoa man. (laughs) Just like, Wow, that song. And so when when God shakes it, it's going to bring the oppressive enemies of God and the oppressive enemies to his people down. And that's certainly a reason why you want to be one of his people. And to his people, the Lord says, you know, basically to us, don't don't let the smallness of what you're doing, don't let the smallness of how you feel, don't let that intimidate you. He says, I will overthrow. I'm going to take care of this thing. Now, it's very interesting. We used to say it's a small world. And years ago, we used to say that, and that just meant a coincidence. You know, you'd meet somebody who knew somebody, and you're like, oh, what a small world it is. Sometimes with Christians, people go, oh, it's such a small world. They go, yeah, too small. Get out. We got to get out and tell people uh, the good news of Jesus. But, but now the Internet has made the world much smaller. And, and no wonder people are so nervous and stressed because the Internet now allows us to see so much more of what God sees, and he sees what's going on in this world. And I think that it's very easy for it to scare us. certainly easy to make us feel even more insignificant than we have may have felt before. But remember that God knows, He doesn't need the Internet. He doesn't need drones, he doesn't need satellites. God knows, God sees and God cares. And so when God says, I'm going to shake everything out, what would that do for these people? I think that hopefully it would would put the Persian Empire in perspective. And I think for us, it would put our problems in perspective. As we see that God is sovereign, he is in control, and God is powerful. Quite simply, the Lord will take this upside down world and he'll set it right side up. And his people will rejoice. And a natural part of being a follower of Jesus is we long for that day. We can't wait for that day to occur. In other words, the, the Lord's shaking will not ruin this world. It will put things back in order. And to me, chaos is, you know, sometimes, you know, with, you can watch you know, FaceTime and stuff like that. You know, I'll... You know, our daughter will FaceTime us with little Noah's room, and he's not quite two yet, or his playroom. And just like there's toys everywhere. And I'm like, what a mess. And I always think of that sort of whenever I see that, whenever I take care of him, I always think of that big mess that I leave for my daughter to clean up. But I always think of that big mess. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I think, you know, when the Lord fixes this world, it's going to be like that playroom, that the Lord's going to fix that mess but yet there'll always be joyful play in that room without it ever becoming a mess again. I don't know how he's going to do it, but I'm, I'm joyfully looking forward to that day. The rejected king, the Lord Jesus Christ, will become the reigning king, and the disappointments of this world will all be completely reversed for followers of Jesus. So some of you are sitting there going, okay, this sounds great. What in the world is he waiting for? 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slack, some versions say slow, concerning his promises, some count slackness, some versions say slowness or delay, but is long-suffering or patient toward us, not willing or not wishing, not wanting, that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So the Lord doesn't, if you're here, you're not a follower of Jesus, the Lord doesn't want you to be part of the shaking. He wants you to be part of the home-going party. And so the Lord is waiting for people to come to repentance. So if you're not a follower of Jesus, we don't we don't I don't want to you know push you along too quickly, but we're all waiting for you. Right? So so please, please listen. Yet I'm sure that many of them in Haggai's day, and I'm sure it's many of you, perhaps thought it was too late. You know, we got we got schlepped off to Babylon. And we come back to this junk heap, and after 16 years, all we got to show for it is God had to send some guy to yell at us and, and tell us that we needed to build, the, the, you know, redo the foundation, and that's all we have to show for it. And obviously, you could think, it's too late for us. The glory will never return to the temple. Perhaps you think, well, you, you, you've messed up so bad, it's too late for you. Maybe you think that God has forgotten you. That's actually a very serious question. You know, to think about, have you gone too far? Have you messed up? These people, these people, their sin was so bad, God had to total the temple in Jerusalem to get to get and take them to Babylon to get their attention. That idolatry pretty much came out of them. There was other sins that came along, but that, that kind of stuff pretty much got out of them. That's a very serious question, especially for those of you who feel like God has exiled you, that God has given up on you. And maybe you, like some of these people here in Haggai's day, you sit here and you say, all right, I get that God makes promises and I get that he answers them in the Bible. But what about now? What about me? I've blown it. Is it too late for me? I think in a sense we have to feel how some of these people might have felt in other, for what comes after this, for us to feel what God was really, how he was really trying to, if you will, resurrect their spirits. I want to read something to you that, that they knew in Babylon because Jeremiah had warned them this was going to happen. But they didn't listen to Jeremiah. They thought he was a nut job. And now they know that what he said came true. Listen to this pre-exile captivity prophecy from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 22, 24 through 27. I want to read verse 24 twice. As I live, says the Lord, through Coniah, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet on my right hand, yet I will pluck you off. Let's go slowly. As I live, says the Lord, though Koinaniah, who is Koinaniah, also known as King Jehoiachin, the last legitimate king of Jerusalem. I know some of you want to say, oh, you know, Zedekiah. If you want to argue with me about that, that's fine. Here's my email address, john at (laughs) (laughs) ccmarshills.org. But Jehoiachin, remember that name. Jehoiachin. Was the last legitimate king carried off to Babylon in 597 B.C. Okay, about 10 years before, really everything came down. The son of Jehoiakim, and by the way, Jehoiachin, the grandfather of Zerubbabel, king of Judah, were the signet. What's a signet? A signet was um, was like a, a ring. That the king would keep on his finger, and it was a way he would put his insignia on documents. They usually melt wax, and he would put it on documents. Sometimes he would wear it on his finger, sometimes he would wear it on his neck. Very important, carried a lot of power. It authenticated his signature, so he would never want to get rid of it. He said, They were a signet on my right hand, yet I would pluck you off. Man, if you're, if, you're, if you're thinking about the the promise to King David that the kings would always come through him and the Messiah would always come through him, and here God says, I'm going to pluck you off. What are you thinking about the promise? You're sitting there in Babylon. You hear this. What are you thinking about the promise? It's dead. I messed up too bad. It's, it's, it's not going to happen. Verse 25, And I will give you into the hand of those who seek your life and into the hand of those Whose face you fear. Lord's like, listen, you didn't fear my face? Well, then you'll fear theirs. The hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and the hand of the Chaldeans. Lord says, what? I'm going to withdraw my protection. You don't want it? That's okay. That's okay. So I will cast you out and your mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. But to the land to which they desire to return, there shall be no return. So, so was the promise over? Well, listen, we just we know that God is not slack; He's not slow. And I'm going to say something that may rub of you, rub some of you the wrong way, but that's okay. Give me a little time on this one. God is not slack; He's not a slacker. He's not slow, but He's also very stubborn. And what I mean by that is I mean he is stubborn in an amazingly good way regarding the keeping of his promises. Verse 23, I want to read it twice. In that day, says the Lord of hosts, I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shiatiel, says the Lord, and I will make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, says the Lord of hosts. So in that day, I think we're moving forward now to the second coming. Says the Lord of hosts, I will take you. I mean, just, just imagine Zerubbabel is hearing this. When he, the Lord says, I'm going to take you. I got plans for you. This merely means a change in status. I'm going to take you and I'm going to do something different with you, something you never ever in the world expected. I will take you, Zerubbabel, my servant. Wait a minute. All along he's been called, been called the governor. Now he's being called my servant. In the book of Isaiah, that is actually the term that, God, that Isaiah uses for the Messiah. Isaiah who was before the exile. The son of Sheatiel. So, so no, you're not just going to be some governor of a ruined city, but in the family line of the king of the cosmos, says the Lord. And will make you like a signet ring. I'm going to put my seal on you. I'm going to put my identity on you. For I have chosen you, says the Lord. So like Moses and King David, Zerubbabel is called my servant. So you say, is he talking to Zerubbabel or is he talking about Jesus? I think both. Let me ask you the question. Don't you want to be called my servant by the Lord? Don't, don't you want that? But, but he also points to a greater reality, a much greater reality. Like Isaiah, the word of the Lord looks to the fulfillment of the promise in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, how do you know this just isn't for Zerubbabel? <laughs> what would the Persians have done if they, ca- they crowned Zerubbabel king? <laughs> It had been all over for him. It had been all over. Zerubbabel, and this is so important, represents God's promise that the messianic line of King David will continue until the arrival of the Lord Jesus. Despite how bad things look, despite how unfaithful God's people can be, God will not allow his promises to fail because he is stubborn in a really, really good way. As a descendant of King David, we see the Lord Jesus, the mighty king. As a descendant of Zerubbabel, we see the Lord Jesus, the humble king. King David is the prominent king Zerubbabel is the hidden king, both pictures of the king of heaven who will come to earth to serve and to save. Jesus said in Luke nineteen, ten, that he came to seek and save that which was lost. An interesting thing about Zerubbabel is really there's not much known about him. In fact, remember we said that Zechariah is a contemporary. He's preaching at the same time. There's actually even overlap in in their ministries, even though uh, Haggai's is such a short time period, just a a few months. And and Zechariah tells us that Zerubbabel was actually around in the day of small things. Yet the Lord, and and David was what? Big things. (laughs) right? Expanding the kingdom. And that's why we need to remember the Lord is always clearly at work. And Zerubbabel reminds us that the Lord's work is not always easy to see. That the Lord's work is not always easy to hear. That the Lord's work is often very, very slow. Once again, your kingdom work is important, whether it seems that way to you or not, because you are part of the Lord's history as you follow Jesus. So how silent can God be? How silent can he be? Well, you can either turn there or put it up on the screen, just a few pages to your right, the the first chapter of the New Testament, Matthew's Gospel. Verses 12 through 16 shows us how silent God can be. Picking up at verse 12. And after they were brought to Babylon, Jeconiah begot, had a son, Sheatiel, and Sheatiel begot Zerubbabel. So God took them to Babylon Captivity, exile, consequences for their sin. And then he brings back Zerubbabel for the day of small things. Zerubbabel begot Abiud. By the way, right now we're in this period, we start to enter this period called the 400 years of silence. You know that, page, that blank page in between your Old Testament and New Testament? That, that one page is 400 years. Somebody like that's the only page of my Bible I understand. <laughs> At least now I do. <laughs> For 400 years, God didn't speak. And people would be wondering: Babylon, small things, silence, 400 years. I mean, think back 400 years ago from today, right? This is like. Christopher Columbus had just landed. I mean, really, it's, you know, it, 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 it's a long time. So, so these people are now, they're going to read through a list of names. They're, they're living their life. Is God at work in the midst of their mundane and normal lives? You may say, my life is mundane. It's normal. There's not much excitement. There's not much going on. How can you tell me God is at work? Is God at work? For those of you who didn't answer. We're going to prove it to you, because they who said yes are right. Begin verse 13. Zerubbabel begot Abiud. Abiud begot, begot means has a son. Eliakim and Eliakim begot Azor. Azor begot Zadok. Zadok begot Achim. Achim, Achim begot Eliud. Eliud begot Eliezer. Eliezer begot Matan. Mathan begot Jacob. And Jacob begot Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born Jesus, who is called Christ All of that time when it seemed like God was doing nothing, He was keeping the family line intact. Because God is always at work, even when we don't see it, even when we don't realize it. The Lord's promise really hangs on what the Lord says to Zerubbabel He says, I will make you like a signet ring. I will, I will stamp my name on you. I will stamp my guarantee on you. I will, my promise will come through you. The Messiah will come through you. In other words, I am going to reverse what happened to the previous generation. Why is he going to do that? Very simply, he writes here, for I have chosen you. So why would God do that? Well, it's the grace of God. That's God's part. But also we see the faithful response of Zerubbabel to trust the Lord and to do what the Lord said and rebuild the temple. Instead of being self-centered, Zerubbabel was God-centered in the day of small things. He didn't despise. The scripture says, don't despise the day of small things. The Lord says, if you're faithful with a little, I'll give you much. That's the way it works on your job, I hope, that if you're faithful. Some pla- I know some of your jobs, they just promote you to get you out of the department. <laughs> but it should be. All the corporate people are like, yeah, that's the way it goes. <laughs> right? but, but, but we should be promoted when we are faithful with the little things. And this is something, I- it's one of those things I wish I just could really communicate It's one of those things that I feel like if I said it every Sunday, a lot of you would still really struggle to believe it. Loved ones, in your day of small things that you may come to despise because you feel not much is going on, your prayers, your service to the Lord and to the people of God, your worship, your generosity, your living out the Christian life, it means a lot. And it proves that God is at work. Now, people go to passages like this and they want to debate God-choosing people and um, we're not going to have that discussion today and I don't even think that's exactly the real point here. I think the point here is There's no doubt that God chooses people. It's a long, involved thing. You could listen to some of our Ephesians 1 and 2 studies might clarify it a little bit for you. They're online. But the point really is here that with with divine choice comes human responsibility. So if you're here and you consider yourself to be a follower of Jesus, it's because, because God has chosen you but you have a responsibility to live out that life which he has chosen you for. Sometimes people say to me, you know, um, so, so what made you want to sell your profitable business and, and become a pastor? And I, I'll often say, I don't mean to sound hyper-spiritual because that's just not me. But I didn't choose this. It was chosen for me. You know what Zerubbabel is going to hear in the day of small things? You know what you're going to hear if you live out the day of small things and you're faithful in those times? This is what you're going to hear, Matthew 25:21. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter, to the jo- enter into the joy of your Lord. <laughs> it's interesting. I wonder if we're going to meet Zerubbabel in heaven and go, hey, can we see your city now, bro? <laughs> right? <laughs> and like, it ain't no, it's like, it's like Disneyland, man. There's no garbage on the sidewalks or anything. Yet all this is possible because of two words that were used here over and over again I will. God will do what he says, he is determined. Some might say he is divinely stubborn. I find it interesting that God didn't say to the people, hey, make Zerubbabel the king. No, he says, says, build the place of my presence. That's because their call, like our call, was, was to passionately worship God, was to joyfully serve and work for God, to eagerly wait for when God makes his move. Their call, our call, was to put an end to empty faith, half-hearted service, and it was to stop procrastinating. Like a loving father, though we fail God, the Lord never gives up on his children. And to prove it, he sent Jesus. Jesus was born in a stable. That's a nice way of saying it was probably like a cave. I know we, you know, I don't want to ruin your, all your, you know, things that you put on your front lawn at Christmas time or something like that. Uh, I grew up across the street from the barn, from a barn. A lot of you know that, from a horse barn. And um, I didn't even need to go out of my house to tell you the last time the barn was cleaned. (laughs) Whenever I go by a horse farm and I smell the manure, I'm like, "Mm, hmm, smells like home. (laughs) Hot days, warm warm breeze. Oh boy. So he's born in a stinky stable or a cave. Born in a manger. Oh, that sounds so nice. That's where they put the, the slop in to feed the animals. Lived in Nazareth. One of the apostles said, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Poor city. You you want to talk about years of silence? Nobody knows who he is. One little incident at the age of 12, nobody knows who he is for 30 years. You trace his birth and and, and all that went on with that. You want to talk about the day of small things? And then when he's baptized, he begins his ministry. What does his father say? This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Guess who didn't despise the day of small things? Guess who was faithful when maybe it didn't seem like much was going on? Jesus lived a perfect life. He served the world. Yet on the cross, he didn't look like King David, did he? He didn't even look like Zerubbabel, did he? You know who he looked like? He looked like Jehoiachin on the cross. Like the king they banished from the land and took captive back to Babylon. It looked like God had taken the signet ring or his, the signature of God off Jesus like he said he would do off Jehoiachin. I'm taking my protection off you. I'm taking my name off you. And on the cross it looked like God had forgotten Jesus. And everybody saw it. Everybody. Luke 23:35. And the people stood looking on, even the ruler, but even the rulers with them sneered, great word, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. Of course, we know if he came down from the cross, he couldn't have saved anyone. He saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ, the chosen of God. It certainly looked like God had given up on him. He felt it. He yelled out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But the good news of the gospel is that a holy and sin-hating God rejected Jesus on the cross. So all who turned to him and put their trust in him would never be rejected. To be honest, on the cross, Jesus was rejected in your place and in my place for our sins On the cross, Jesus was exiled from God. Jesus was cut off. So you never would be if you would simply put your trust in him. And Jesus signed the agreement in his blood. And for those who put their trust in him, Ephesians tells us, he seals us with the Holy Spirit. When Jesus died on the cross, things looked unstable. Things looked hopeless. But Jesus rose from the dead, defeating the greatest enemy of all, death, to bring hope and stability to us. But that's only for the chosen ones. So how do you know you're chosen? Because you choose Jesus. That's how you know. And you choose to follow his call to be faithful. So if that's you, what are some of the promises that you have? John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So you say, oh, I've messed up too much. Jesus says, you come to me? No problem, won't cast you out, I'll take you. I'll take you. All you need to do is come to me. That's it. That's it. No excuses now. That famous passage in John 10 where he calls himself the good shepherd. John said, he says, listen, I, I will, you know, you will hear my voice. You will know my voice. I will give you eternal life. You will never perish. And no one can snatch you out of my hand. No one can snatch you out of my hand. John 14, 3, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you will be also. I will come for you. Matthew 16, Jesus said, I will build my church. At the second coming of Jesus, the Lord will shake heaven and earth, but he will also bring stability To this shaky world. And King Jesus will reign. And so with all the people who have put their trust in him with him. Until that day there's things we learned in Haggai that we need to repent of. We need to turn from. We need to repent from being the indifferent people of chapter 1. And we need to turn to God. And become the excited people. Of chapter 2. That means perseverance. That means, if you will, our own brand of of godly stubbornness. That we are going to persevere. Shaking the world with the good news. And watching it bring stability to people who do not yet know the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, though things may look shaky now. Though God's ways are often silent and hard to see. The promise of the Lord is this. This place is not your home. And the best is yet to come. If you're not a follower of Jesus today, put your trust in him today. Come up and speak with someone here after the service. Be adopted into the family of God and you can hear the Lord's words from the scriptures for you today 2 Corinthians 6:18 I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters says the Lord Almighty well let's pray